This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Henning Melbourne to discuss his book, Dog Hammarskjöld. United Nations, and the Decolonization of Africa. Hammarskjöld in many ways remains the UN's best-known Secretary General, and Dr. Melber examines the formative experiences that shaped Hammarskjöld, and in turn how Hammarskjöld shaped the UN at a crucial moment in its history. Uh, Dr. Melber, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. In a short summary, I call myself a German-born Namibian living in Sweden. Some of you might hear my German accent. I grew up in Namibia, and I spent the last 19 years in Sweden. I'm a political scientist and sociologist. I studied African and development studies, basically motivated by my experiences in an apartheid society, which I was taking sides against. Uh, I joined the anti-colonial movement, and uh, I was mainly engaged in African studies, um, anti-apartheid studies, uh, more recently looking into liberation movements as governments. And since I ended up as the executive director of the Dark Hammarskjöld Foundation for the last years of my professional life, I started to explore uh, who that guy Dark Hammarskjöld was and ended up with writing a number of articles and now a book on Dark Hammarskjöld. So briefly for our listeners, who was Dag Hammarskjöld? Dag Hammarskjöld was a Swede, but one of the cosmopolitan Europeans. He grew up in Sweden and then he became the second secretary general of the United Nations, for which he served between 1953 until 1961. He was the only secretary general who was killed in office, and I use the word killed because I guess we will talk about that a bit later more in more detail. Uh, There are current investigations into the circumstances of the plane, which crashed in the night from 17 to 18 September 1961. So he was the only one who served the United Nations until his death, and he was on a mission to bring a peaceful solution to the Congo at the time, which he failed to do. He was prevented to do. It was one of the missions uh, not concluded. But but Dakamashal became a role model, actually, and his impact lasted far longer than his life. And he is, until the very day, much admired in the community of international civil servants, Many of those consider him as the ultimate Secretary General of the United Nations. So before we launch into the, into the meat of the book, I just sort of wanted to ask, um, how do you see this book fitting into your earlier scholarship? Because it, as you just sort of told it, um, you sort of came up 
in the middle of the liberation movements and then in the middle of African studies. Where does this book sort of fit, do you think, in your own intellectual sort of trajectory? Except that's a rather intimate question, which, however, I like, because the book touches a lot on my own biography. Um, I indicated in passing that uh, I took sides in the anti-colonial movement. I joined SWAPO, the Namibian anti-colonial movement, in 1974, at a time where it was not opportunistic as a white to change the sides. And I was exiled as a result from 1975 to 1989 and went from South Africa until 1993. And I came across a number of things which on and off put the question in front of me, what is the meaning of solidarity? And what is the meaning of humanism? How important are principled values? Where do you compromise? Where do you say the values are more important than loyalty to an organization? I had mentioned in passing that I'm dealing with liberation movements as governments. And rather, what I mean is the limits to liberation, where, for example, liberation movements violated human rights within their own ranks. And these were questions I was confronted with most of my adult life. And there was a point where I had to decide which side am I on, similar to how I was forced to take that decision earlier when I joined the anti-colonial movement. And I finally decided, after returning to Namibia and being eight years at the head of a think tank which offered policy advice to my comrades who now were the government, that taking sides means taking sides with fundamental human rights with the well-being of the ordinary people and not being part of a pact among elites. That brought me to Sweden, that decision, 19 years ago. And I first was at the Nordic Africa Institute, and I continued my research on Southern Africa, on racism, on solidarity and related fields. And then I had this opportunity to join the Dorkhammerscheid Foundation, and by that time, I already started to be curious and interested in that person, Dark Hammerschild, because he was a personification how you are loyal to values and to integrity and to ethics, which I found very appealing and something where I thought, well, that's actually very nice to end your professional life with. Uh, to represent Dark Hammerschild through that foundation. And that was the attraction for me. And it's an attraction which ultimately led to this book, uh, being aware that Dark Hammerschild is perceived and judged in very different ways. Some accuse him to have been an imperialist agent and a sellout. Others say he was almost a saint. And I felt Despite a lot of literature existing, this balancing act, how does a person as a diplomat as he was, as the head of a global governance institution, how does that person handle the contradictions and where are the, draw the lines such a person draws between the values he or she believes in and what the organizational framework expects or particular 
important or influential interest in such an organization are demanding. So that was a personal interest. And the moment I stepped down as director from the foundation, I had in mind, now should be the time where I try to come up with such a balancing act. And what was quite obvious that I should focus on the role Hammarskjöld played as Secretary General of the United Nations in the decolonization process of Africa. Now, you've alluded, there have been many strong views put out there about Hammarskjöld, uh, ranging from very strongly positive to very strongly negative. Um, where where does this book sort of fit into that? And where are some of those other views coming from? Are they scholars? Are they people who worked with him? Well, first of all, already in the introduction, I plead guilty. As someone who has admired Hammarskjöld and now tries to look at Hammarskjöld and the context in which he operated with a slightly more balanced view in the sense that I confess that there were occasions when I look back where I was overtly uncritical, not looking into the context and maybe too generous when it came to the limitations of the person in the office. But on the other hand, then also saying um, there is this anti-Hammerschuld and anti-United Nations tendency among people who happen actually very often to be in their political ideological orientation, not too far from mine as an old lefty, um, who just dismiss everything as imperialist conspiracy. And if you come from a Western country, almost by definition, you are doomed to be a Western uh, imperialist agent. And I use the example of how um, carelessly sometimes uh, there is a juggling with sources. For example, there is a trade in the anti-Hammerschild literature. They always make use of one quote which someone brought up, uh, which tries to show that Hammerschild was behind the plot to liquidate Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. And the quote is an entry in a report by a CIA agent who says, with reference to a conversation, that Hammerschild believed or was supposed to have said that Lumumba should be removed. But that quote lacks any reference to what conversation, the context of the conversation, and what the purpose of the report was. And we know from reports, they sometimes present views anticipating what the recipient of the report wants to hear. And if you only have such one singular source to base your whole arguments on, then it's rather weak and dubious. And I use other examples where I fell for, where it's difficult to justify why those examples, painting him as the ultimate hero or saint, are in a similar way reliable, because they are not. They are also based on hearsay or on a not very reliable source. So actually, as funny as it might sound, more than 55 years after his death, we are still confronted with very selective treatments of the sources, 
either by political oriented, more activist scholars or by scholars who are more in the traditional field, they are actually doing the more solid work. They are properly referencing and quoting, but you have very often, very soon the indication where does the person who engages with the subject stands on the pro-Hamoshel side or on the anti-Hamoshel side. And I out myself from the beginning as being on the pro-Hamoshel side, but at pains to find out also the limitations of a person and of the person in an office of such an institution where there are different interests and where you are not able to stand above the institution because you are inside of the institution. So that was for me the challenge. And one exit way I thought I could use was that I based most of the book on the 1,400 pages, let me repeat, 1,400 pages of statements and speeches and declarations of Hammarskjöld himself collected and edited in four volumes of speeches of the Secretary General published after his death. And they are impressively coherent between 1953 and 1961. And one of my arguments I use is when I make uh, use of those quotes from different years of all those eight years, that I say some people accuse him of having double standards, being hypocritical, but then he must have been very, very concise and coherent hypocritical because what he said in 1953, he almost word by word said in a different context in 1961. And I take this as a sign to say, look at what he said throughout the eight years. Compare it with what he, what he did, what he did, and you can see, of course, the limitations, but you cannot see that he is chuckling around with words. And it's not like you can witness these days with uh, high-ranking, very prominent people in political offices that where the flippant saying is, oh, he moved his lips, that means he was lying. That was not the case with Hammarskjöld. He was very coherent and very much to the point on all the issues that count. So I wanted to ask, before we dive into his career as Secretary General, how was he shaped by his early life? Very much so. He was born into a family which was almost aristocratic, an integral part of Swedish society for several centuries. And that Swedish society was in the time of Dark Hammarskjöld's upbringing at the verge of turning from one of the poorest societies in Europe into a welfare state. And Hammarskjöld was an integral part of that early transition. Hammarskjöld was born as the fourth son of a family where the father was uh, a governor of the local Upland region in Uppsala. He grew up in Uppsala, but his father was also tasked to negotiate the peace with Norway and the independence of Norway, which he did while Hammarskjöld was born. And there is on record uh, a letter by his mother who wrote to her husband that three months after the birth of his fourth son, it might be time to come back and see the son. 
because he was busy in those negotiations. He was then the father appointed by the king during World War I as the prime minister of Sweden, and his core value was strict neutrality, which he pursued to an extent that the Swedish people were suffering from the lack of resources because of the neutrality. He refused to accept anything from another state. So people were really battling to survive, which um, in in their jargon turned Hammerschuld into the name Hungerschuld. So he was also rather controversial, but for Dark Hammerschuld, he was the role model of an independent civil servant who was proud to serve the general interest. And the Swedish civil servant, without glorifying it too much, of the 20th century, at least at the earlier parts of the 20th century, was really a service to the public interest of the people. It was not done for career purposes. It was not done for money. It was done because the ultimate goal was to serve the best interest of the people. And Dark Hammarskjöld was growing up in a kind of Protestant ethic of Max Weber, And he was exposed through his father and his mother, who came from a very artistic family. Uh, His great uncle was one of the most prominent poets of the early 19th century in Sweden. He was confronted also with a surrounding where the family interacted with Albert Schweitzer, for example, or with the bishop Nathan Söderblom, who in the 1930s, the local bishop in Uppsala, got uh, the Peace Nobel Prize. So he grew up in that, what you could say, liberal bourgeois environment. And in the homage, which was paid to him when he got posthumously the Nobel Peace Prize in 1962, he was called a Renaissance man. And I think that captures rather well uh, his background He never denied to be a Swede, but I think he's also a very good example when you know where you come from and you are anchored in that, you can afford to be open to otherness because otherness doesn't scare you. You're not afraid of it. You have a curiosity because you know who you are. You know your values. So you don't feel afraid to be confronted with other values Rather, you you are open to engage with otherness and very often at the end you find out the other is not so different from you. So um, when the United Nations is first founded, um, most of Africa, almost all of Africa, remains under some form of European colonial domination. What was the early relationship of the UN to Africa in this period? Hardly any. We know that there were two countries. That was uh, basically Liberia and uh, at a later stage, Ethiopia. Otherwise, the African continent was colonized since the Berlin Conference of 1884. Uh, The Western European colonial powers uh, had basically divided the whole of the continent uh, in different ways and different stages uh, among themselves. And 
the UN Charter was preceded by the Atlantic Charter, and it's very interesting to see how they relate. And both were adopted. Well, South Africa was, of course, involved as a member in the British Dominion, but both of those um, normative frameworks made reference to self-determination, but in an understanding that self-determination does not imply independence of the colonies. That was for them beyond imagination. And Winston Churchill is quoted along that, where he says, that doesn't mean the empire gives up the colonies. That has nothing to do with self-determination. The colonies were at best perceived to be trusteeship councils, which the mandate system was with the League of Nations introducing. So where, again, the quote-unquote civilized nations took care of the colonized people, and Africa didn't feature. It didn't feature at all. The first time that Africa featured prominently in the UN discourse was when the Declaration of Human Rights and the Trusteeship Council, which was established, were overlapping in a sense that the few voices from the global south were able to link the Declaration of Human Rights with the notion of decolonization. But very interesting, one of the very first clashes on human rights issues in the United Nations was a fight over South African apartheid with the Indian government represented by Nehru. And the argument was not that apartheid violates human rights because it oppresses black people. The argument was about apartheid violating the human rights of the Indian minority in South Africa. So even there you could see double standards at play in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And interesting enough, however, while South Africa was a founding member of the League of Nations and of the United Nations, uh, the head of state Smuts lost the battle against Nehru, and it was the first time that South Africa was condemned for its domestic policies, not of its domestic policies as regards the black majority, but of its domestic discriminatory policy as regards the Indian minority. But coming back to your question, I use it to illustrate a point. Africa did not really play any prominent role in the late 40s or early 1950s, which rather soon changed when Hammarskjöld resumed office. So two questions, and they're really, this is a genuine two-part question. How does Hammarskjöld come into office? And you use this term, the Hammarskjöld approach, which I really like. I, I think it's really evocative of the way that he worked. What was the Hammarskjöld approach? Well, first, it's quite an amusing story how he came into the office. Um, as I referred to, Dark Hammarskjöld was a leading Swedish official. He was actually one of the architects of the welfare state. He was a trained economist, something is also not very much known, uh, that he did his PhD as an economist. And actually, his uh, opponent was Gunnar Myrdal, the very famous Swedish economist who had a lead role then in global economics and also in the UN. They later clashed because they had different views uh, on development policy. But Gunnar Myrdal was the opponent of Dark Hammarskjöld, who then was 
uh, graduating with a PhD in economics. Uh, he was uh, heading the, the central bank in Sweden, and he was basically one of the top three or four people generating the welfare state. And he was then involved in the Marshall Plan for Europe. That's where his international career began. And he then in 1952-53 was heading the permanent mission of Sweden to the United Nations. But he was not known. He was hardly known. That was the time when the Norwegian Trukve Lee, as the first UN Secretary General, fell into disgrace by the Russians. They considered him an unguided missile, and they stopped collaborating and supporting with him, which made his second term in office untenable. So he announced his resignation, which, again, is actually a unique case and required that the Security Council identified a suitable candidate to be uh, suggested to the General Assembly and then be appointed as Secretary General. That procedure has not really uh, fundamentally changed since then. And the Security Council discussed a few candidates. And then, as today, you had different proposals from the different camps that was already the height of the Cold War. And each of those candidates was basically dismissed because they were considered too pro-Soviet or too pro-Western. So there was no agreement. Until the French representative in the Security Council said, what about this Monsieur Amarschöld? And the first response was silence because basically no one knew who is this Monsieur Amarschöld. And then they looked at him and they said, oh, it's this Swedish civil servant. Ah, this withdrawn person, this controlled person, never throwing a tantrum, always being so, you know. Uh, so they thought, well, maybe that is the public servant who is exactly the kind of person that suits us very well because he's supposed to be an administrator and supposed to do what we tell him. Oh boy, were they wrong. But that was the reason ultimately <laughs> why the Security Council could finally agree that Dark Hammarskjöld, the Swedish civil servant, might be the best suited person to be appointed as Secretary General. Now, if I'm asked in debates today, would he be Secretary General again? I have a very clear answer, never. Would someone else who would display visibly while being a candidate, similar virtues of Hammarskjöld, become a secretary general. Forget it. What happened in 1953 was that they took the virtues of a Swedish civil servant in a completely wrong way that they misunderstood it as you're not interfering, you're doing what you're told. So that was how Hammarskjöld became the Secretary General. Now, what was his approach? It was actually very different. For him, integrity mattered. For him, decency mattered. For him, belief systems mattered. He strongly believed that the UN Charter is a secular Bible. And many afterwards also attached to him 
the characterization as a secular pope. For whom the UN Charter and the principles enshrined were almost holy. And he defined his mandate as a Hammarskjöld approach that as Secretary General, you are in the first place tasked to follow the principles of a United Nations Charter. And if member states are ignoring them or deviating from them, then it's vested in the authority of the office of the Secretary General to draw their attention to it. So, as a most obvious example, in uh, that time of the Cold War, which hasn't changed, there were numerous conflicts ongoing. The UN Charter is looking for peaceful solutions. So Hammarskjöld took the liberty to raise issues because he said it's rested in the authority of his office and drew the attention to these issues to the member states in the Security Council. So he played a very active, almost autonomous role based on the interpretation of the United Nations Charter, which until the day is contested by those member states who are not interested in having a proactive secretary general. Hammarskjöld's approach was exactly that. As secretary general, you have to try to live up to the values enshrined in the charter. And you need to try your best that the member states who ratified the charter, who ratified all the subsequent normative frameworks, are also respecting, recognizing, and living up to the values they basically endorsed by being a member state of the United Nations. I think that's, in a nutshell, one of the most important aspects of the Hammarskjöld approach. There are several more. Maybe we have more time a bit later to engage with these. But I think that's the most important thing. He was personifying the ideals and the values of the United Nations. So... To bring this back to Africa, then, what was his approach to dealing with Africa? Because as you said before, it doesn't really show up for the UN. Most of Africa doesn't even have meaningful representation in the United Nations. And how does he view the decolonizing world? He defined the right to self-determination as the right for African societies to govern themselves. That was a different approach to what I said before of the Western powers, who adopted the Atlantic Charter and were basically also adopting uh, the UN Charter. So for him, self-determination meant that the peoples in the Global South or anywhere else in a given society were entitled to govern themselves. And very early in his office, there was the Bandung Conference of 1955, which was a very important turning point for these peoples in the Global South to come together and create a platform for their demands to independence, who organized in anti-colonial resistance movements. And Hammarskjöld immediately realized the far-reaching impact of the Bandung Conference. And as he declared then in some of his speeches, colonialism was untenable. He dismissed colonialism as not being in line with fundamental values 
as enshrined also in the United Nations Charter and in the United Nations system, because the Trusteeship Council did not foresee that you administer those territories until eternity, but the Trusteeship Council was tasked to empower those societies to govern themselves. And that was not necessarily in the interest of most of the Western countries. And Hammarskjöld did not share their interests. He promoted that right. And he also drew attention to the fact that the global structures in the world economy are totally unjust. For him, ECOSOC, and that's a very remarkable insight, for him, ECOSOC, he's on record of that, the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations, was more important than the Security Council because he said to reorganize the structural limitations of the global economy and to give the societies and countries of the South not only the right to self-determination, but also reduce their dependency from the colonial countries was for him an utmost priority. It's quite fascinating because until the very day, I have not come across another secretary general who would in such clarity say, actually what's discussed in the ECOSOC and what's the ECOSOC's mandate is strictly speaking more important than what the Security Council does. Because Hammarskjöld clearly had the understanding if there are no fair economic relations and if the people are not living in secure situations, then you will not achieve peace. So for him also, independence of uh, the southern countries, the colonized world, was a contribution to world peace because he felt really this is the sign of the times. And one should also add what might have helped him was, uh, I mentioned it before when I was dealing with the issue of otherness, he had a huge knowledge and curiosity in the variety of cultures in the world and the religions. And he approached all of them with similar respect and recognition. So for him, people who felt uh, differently, who had different belief systems, who had different traditions, cultural values, narratives, that at best provoked his curiosity, but not in the sense of looking down on them or being patronizing or paternalistic, but the curiosity on the same level to learn from them, to be inspired and to be enriched. And I think that also helped him to look at them on the same level. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So you present us with two case studies uh, to sort of cons uh, to look at and consider Hammarskjöld. On the one hand, uh, the Suez Crisis, and then on the other, the Congo Crisis. And both of these are some of the most significant foreign policy moments in Africa in this period. What do they tell us about him, and what do they tell us about the UN? 
they are very good examples of the Hammarskjöld diplomacy. And they are, to some extent, success stories in the sense, independent of what happened then, that Hammarskjöld uh, managed in both cases to bring them to the Security Council and get a mandate to intervene. That shows also the limits to the office because there were several cases where he failed to do that. Hammarskjöld was, of course, mandated to operate within the UN system based on the charter, but also dependent on decisions in the Security Council, which made him not very happy at times, and he therefore also tried towards the end of his uh, term in office uh, to delegate more powers to the General Assembly. Now, there were early cases like Guatemala, the U.S. intervention there, uh, like Hungary, which happened parallel to Suez, like Biserte in Tunisia, or the apartheid system in South Africa, where Hammarskjöld would have wanted to have a mandate, and he didn't get it, because the argument was it would be an interference into domestic affairs. In the Suez case, he managed to identify a window of opportunity. What happened was that when Nasser announced that he wants to nationalize uh, the Suez Canal, that Great Britain and France colluded with Israel to create a situation where there is a military intervention to prevent Egypt from having the definition of power or the interference into the Suez Canal and keep the control if necessary, by military means, over the Suez Canal. But that was a moment in time in 1956 where the USA had a free trade agenda, where they were interested also to decolonize, to get access to the former European colonies, and where the Soviet Union had a similar interest. So Hammarskjöld realized that it was one of the rare moments where he could bring together the USSR and the USA to support a draft resolution in the Security Council to give the UN a mandate to intervene and secure that the conflict is prevented from turning into a full-fledged war in the Suez crisis. So he then asked Tunisia, as a non-permanent member, representing basically one of the few countries from the Global South, to submit such a draft resolution, which was then supported by the Soviet Union and the USA, which meant it did not basically allow France and Great Britain to veto it, because it's the USA that brought it in. So they abstained from the resolution, which meant the resolution was adopted with the abstentions of France and Great Britain and allowed Hammarskjöld to send for the first time blue helmets to the Suez to prevent a further escalation of the crisis. That was one of the more brilliant diplomatic uh, achievements he had in his career. And if you go back into the deliberations of the time and how he presented the case, and how it was discussed in the Security Council, then you can see how cleverly he managed 
to create a constellation where he at the end achieved that mandate and then created uh, the peace-building forces, the Blue Helmets, in the way they are almost like they are today. Um, so that was a positive example, I would say, even if then later in uh, in the years after Hammarskjöld's death, uh, some of the agreements that then had been entered failed to remain as stable as they were supposed to be. But generally, I think uh, it was one of the huge achievements during Hammarskjöld's time in the office. Now, rather similar to that was the situation when the conflict in the Congo erupted. The Congo became independent in June 1960, and within weeks, it was bordering to civil war. The Belgians withdrew reluctantly, and they maintained a presence in the Congo, and they had an interest in maintaining in control over the tremendous natural resources of far-reaching geostrategical relevance of um, the West uh, in the Katanga province. So what happened was that uh, the Belgians were in control of large parts of the Congolese army and also uh, backed up the Katangese secession under Moise Chombe. And in that situation, it was the new government of the Congo that appealed to the United Nations to come to the rescue. Now, there was not a big interest in coming to the rescue, and Hammarskjöld originally did not really uh, seem to be uh, having a chance to get a mandate through the Security Council because the interests were too different and contradictory. That was the moment when he actually revoked something which he could do in the authority as Secretary General by saying he's going to the General Assembly because there's a clause in the UN Charter which in principle allows the Secretary General in certain urgent situations where the Security Council is not able to deal with the matter to bring the matter to the attention of the General Assembly. And that was a time where the Global South already had quite more number of seats in the General Assembly than in the late 40s, early 1950s. And that was kind of a turning point where the uh, Security Council then felt maybe even almost harassed and then could agree to give the Secretary General a mandate for an intervention in the Congo, which, however, was very vague, which opens another very interesting debate because the mandates the Security Council adopts until the very day are often extremely vague because it's the only way to find a compromise between the different interests of the member states, in particular the permanent members who all hold veto powers, those five. So as a result, and that was then the case as it is until the very day, the mandate for the Congo mission was rather vague. For example, it said the UN is tasked to maintain peace but is prevented from interference in domestic affairs. Now, I would like to know if any one of those who listens could bring me an answer, how do you square that circle? How do you manage 
to intervene, but not into domestic affairs to bring about peace and security. I mean, come on, what what do you say? It's basically mission impossible. Now, it was interesting that in the early stages of the mandate, Hammarskjöld seemed to see it as an advantage because it left him a far room of interpretation and maneuvering. And he could always say, well, the mandate is so vague. I was within the mandate to understand it like this or like that. But the more the conflict increased and the more he was criticized, first from the Soviet Union, but later also from the Western states, and they all felt he was acting against his interest, which I find is one of the most Uh, the biggest compliments one can get. I mean, you're accused of the Soviet Union to be a Western lackey, and you are accused accused by the Western member states to be a sellout to the Soviet Union. And he actually, it was one of the few examples where he he was priding himself that this happened to him. It's an anecdote, but it's quite revealing. He sent a cartoon which was published in a U.S. American newspaper in 1960 or 61, uh, where it showed Charles de Gaulle, who was an, he hated Hammarskjöld since the Suez Crisis, meeting uh, Nikita Khrushchev. And Khrushchev never liked Hammarskjöld. And de Gaulle had uh, a slogan on his jacket saying, I don't like duck. And Khrushchev had a slogan on his jacket saying, I don't like duck either. And, <laughs> He sent this cartoon to one of his closest friends in a letter in Sweden and and wrote on it, it's one of the very few moments where I feel very proud. (laughs) So that was the constellation. And it was at the same time also a handicap because when he took the liberty to make an interpretation, he was immediately criticized for that interpretation by people in the Security Council. So it's an ongoing debate until the very day in different conflicts since then that a broad mandate leaves too much room for interpretation. But to get a mandate, you need that room because otherwise the different interests represented by the member states in the Security Council will not agree to the mandate. They all have their different reading of the mandate. So you could say, on the one hand, it was a success that he managed to get the mandate in the Congo. On the other hand, the price was maybe, maybe too high. But then again, looking back, the Congo, ever since 1960, never found peace. And it was an ongoing conflict until the very day while we speak. But at the same time, a lot of people, even including some of those who are critical of Hammarskjöld, are willing to admit the intervention in the Congo in 1960-61 at the height of the Cold War, with the Katanga province being of utmost geostrategic relevance for the West and for the East, that intervention prevented the Congo conflict from erupting into potentially what could have become a third world war. So it's it's ultimately a, the Congo crisis that leads to Hammarskjöld's death. And this has fueled a great deal of speculation about what happened to him. So what did happen? And then what are the theories that have been advanced about his death? First of all, the Congo crisis escalated. And in mid 
1961, the crisis entered a stage of military conflicts where to a limited extent, even by the Security Council, military force was not, as a matter of principle, excluded any longer. So as a result, in August and September 1961, the Blue Helmets on the ground tried by military force to intervene in the Katanka province, the secessionist province, and to force out the mercenaries and the Belgians who were still present to back up the Katangese secession led by Moise Schombe. Those two interventions failed, and the crisis actually got worse. In that situation, Dark Hammarskjöld decided on short notice, a week before the general uh, uh, assembly was supposed to open again in New York, to fly to the Congo, and on the ground there after arrival, he invited Moise Chombe, the leader of the secession, for a meeting on neutral ground, and he suggested that it should be Dola, that was the mining town in the copper belt of today's Zambia, that time northern Rhodesia under white administration, bordering to the Congo and close to the Katanga province. Now, Moise Chombe was actually not a legitimate negotiating partner because he was personifying a not-recognized uh, secessionist movement and felt, of course, extremely flattered that the Secretary General would want to discuss with him a possible solution to the crisis. And he accepted the invitation. Now, what we can reconstruct on the basis of some of the last uh, documents available in the communication of Hammarskjöld with some of his advisors was that Hammarskjöld seemingly had in mind to find a solution by offering Schombe that he stops the secession, brings back the Katanka province in as an integral part with some autonomous structures into the state territory of the Congo and in return will be offered a higher ranking position in the government of the Congo. Now that was met by disapproval as far as we know from exchanges and cables by Western diplomats but also by Eastern diplomats by all sides because they all feared that their own interests were at stake. Be as it may, Hammarskjöld left with a plane and 14 others on board for Dola. And the route was carefully selected. He wanted to reduce the risk to a minimum. It was considered as a very risky mission. And the fact that one of his Swedish officials to his side was asked by Hammarskjöld to leave the plane again because he had just become a father, speaks to the situation where Hammarskjöld felt this is too risky and that young father should not come along. When the plane approached Dola Airport shortly after midnight from the 17th to the 18th of September, which also explains why 
the death of Hammarskjöld and the 15 others is commemorated on the 17th of September in the United Nations. That was the local time there in the USA. And on the 18th of September in uh, Europe, which is also the date on his, uh, at the family grave, um, that explains why it's either the 17th or the 18th September. When that plane approached, it crashed immediately before landing, killing all except one person on board of the plane. That person was discovered in the late, in the early afternoon the next day, brought to hospital and died there three days later. It was a security guard. And immediately after the plane crash, there were several investigations. A Rhodesian one, a UN one, and a Swedish one. And the Rhodesian one very clearly concluded the crash was because of a pilot's error. The Swedish one was very typical Sweden. You don't mess up and you don't interfere. It didn't really take a clear sound. The UN investigation, however, concluded that it couldn't dismiss any of four likely possibilities, which was not only a pilot's error, but also some damage to the plane, some forced damage to the plane, or another act of sabotage. And because of that, the, the UN Commission's report, tabled in 19. 62, was accepted by the General Assembly with a resolution which said if there is new evidence that would merit continued investigations, then the United Nations can decide to remain seized with the matter. That was in 1962. And that was shelved. It was shelved for 53 years. But what happened in 2011 was that a new book by the scholar Susan Williams with the title Who Killed Hammerschild did not answer the question of the book title, but came up with an overwhelming list of contradictions, new evidences, and unclarified circumstances, which clearly suggested that a pilot's error is far too easy an answer and an overt simplification. That rather all the things we know point in another direction. But that was a private book published, was received with much attention, but that's it. So as a result of the book, however, a group of a handful of people, private individuals, including Susan Williams, took an initiative as a so-called enabling committee and approached four international, renowned, highly recognized legal experts, all of them retired, and invited them on the basis of a pro bono one-year job to look into all that evidence presented in the book and then come up with a verification to what extent that evidence 
would make sense from a strictly legal perspective. And those four did that job, and they submitted a report which was presented in The Hague in 2014, I believe. And um, that report said there is probative value that there might have been a second plane in the air and directly impacting in one way or another on the plane approaching, which then crashed. And that report was handed over to the Secretary General of the United Nations, at that time Ban Ki-moon, who I should add still had a personal emotional affinity to Hammarskjöld, because while he was a schoolboy in South Korea, he had written on behalf of his class a letter to the then Secretary General Dark Hammarskjöld. So, and I could witness him visiting twice the Hammarskjöld grave in Uppsala, and he was visibly emotionally involved while he was speaking. So maybe he was exactly the right secretary general in that situation to receive such a report. That report was then scrutinized by his team of legal experts in the office of the secretary general, and based on their findings, the secretary general submitted to the United Nations General Assembly a report where he recommended that the new evidence presented would indeed justify that the United Nations again become seized with the matter and follow up on that private report through a panel of experts to then see to what extent that evidence continues to hold water. That panel of experts then submitted a report in 2015 to the United Nations General Assembly, no, to the Secretary General, who then submitted it to the General Assembly. And it recommended that there is sufficient probative value that would merit and justify further investigations. And on that basis, a draft resolution, which was submitted by the Swedish permanent mission to the United Nations, was adopted with an overwhelming majority of the member states. And there was a commission established under the retired Chief Justice of Tanzania, Judge Otman, Mohammed Otman, to look into those evidences. And a year later, Judge Otman reported back to the General Assembly And his findings confirmed that there is sufficient indication and new material based on their continued investigations that would merit a follow-up. So then the General Assembly again decided that Judge Ottman would be appointed as eminent person tasked by the United Nations General Assembly to make further investigations. And a year later, His report added new evidence, and I can't go into the details because it would take too much time, but evidence which clearly substantiated that it was possible in terms of logistics that a second plane was in the air. It was possible in terms of the pilots on the ground who were qualified enough, and it was possible 
by the nature of the planes that they could interfere, even shoot at the approaching plane with the Secretary General and 15 others. Based on that, the General Assembly extended the eminent person's mandate for another one and a half years. And Judge Ottman just now, in early October, had submitted a report which is now presented to the General Assembly with the recommendation of the Secretary General Gutierrez saying there is further justification that there is still confidential material out out there where there is no access provided by the member states, most likely or most importantly, the United Kingdom and the USA, but also South Africa, which would merit that there is another mandate for another eminent person, presumably Judge Ottman again, to make further investigations and try to get access to that material which seems to exist and is not released. And the mere fact that 58 years after that plane crashed, member states of the United Nations are not willing to provide access to documents which exist seems to indicate that well, where there is smoke, there might be fire. Mm-hmm. For example, it's taken for granted that the NSA, which then already existed and had at least two planes on the ground in Dola, recorded the air traffic between Hammarskjöld's plane approaching and the tower at Dola Airport. But these transcriptions of the air traffic communication have never been made accessible. But that might be one of the most reliable sources to indicate, was there a second plane in the air? Did the second plane in a direct or indirect uh, way um, attack Hammarskjöld's plane, which maybe forced a pilot error, which would not have happened without that second plane? or maybe directly even damaged the plane. In the latest report of Judge Ottman, he discloses hitherto unreleased photos, which for the first time seem to suggest that there were indeed bullet holes in the wreckage of the Hammarskjöld plane. And one of his recommendations in his recent report is to seek forensic evidence to verify if these are indeed bullet holes. Because that, of course, would make a major difference. Mm -hmm. So then, sort of to sum up, where do you see the legacy of Hammarskjöld? And and what kind of lessons can he teach us about international governance today? For me, the most important thing would be to say, as a legacy, integrity matters. It went throughout his time as a Swedish civil servant, as a secretary general, you are loyal to values and you do not compromise. Um, There is a very interesting recorded exchange between Hammarskjöld and the permanent representative of the United Kingdom in the late 50s. It was 
related, I believe, to the Suez Crisis, where the British permanent representative said to Hammarskjöld on a certain issue where they disagreed, there is a matter of expediency. And reportedly, Hammarskjöld turned very pale and responded by saying, and there is a matter of integrity. And I think that very much illustrates his approach to certain issues. And he repeatedly in the Security Council and in the General Assembly said, there is no compromise justified if it violates the fundamental principles of the United Nations Charter and related normative frameworks. So I think that is one of the fundamental legacies. I would list some others. For Hammarskjöld, diverse interests to be acknowledged was a point of departure. He showed a willingness to listen and to understand before coming up with his own ideas and proposals. He always stressed that you first need to understand the other one and try to look at the matter from the other one's view before you can come up with something which might be constructive enough. And he also stressed that you always have to be careful and to promote face-saving measures. Do never ever bully someone. Do never ever try to put them down. Always try to find a compromise within the principles of the Charter, which is considered to be face-saving. He also stressed that the United Nations should never ever be used as instruments by any individual member state. And that's where I would say in today's jargon, Dark Hammarskjöld applied something which you would call anti-hegemonic. He was first dismissed by the Soviet Union, but he was then dismissed by the Western powers. So basically, that's also what he said in one of his speeches. If you are criticized and dismissed by any of the influential big powers, then it shows that you do your job properly. <laughs> so that is another lesson, of course. Do not be used as an instrument by any member state to serve their individual particular agendas. And he also stressed that each and every individual member state deserves the same respect and recognition. And one could say in looking back, Dark Hammarskjöld was the Secretary General of the small states, of the weak states, of the new states. And they actually also considered him as their Secretary General. That's why he, at the end of his term in office, before he died, tried to give more power to the General Assembly that those states who do not have an important say in the Security Council can influence matters, maybe even in a decisive way. When he was asked to resign by the Soviet Union in 1960-61 because of the Congo crisis, he made a very famous, maybe his most famous speech in the General Assembly of the United Nations where he said, more or less, it's easy to resign. It's not so easy to stay in the office. And he said, I'm there to represent the interests of those states 
who are otherwise not represented. And if they want me to resign, I will resign immediately. And the moment he said that, he was interrupted by a standing ovation by those states. And you had a fascinating picture. And it's if you go to YouTube, there is a clip on that situation. And you could see there was Nehru from India standing, Burgiba from Tunisia standing, Kruma from uh, Ghana standing, Toure uh, from Guinea standing. There were the heads of state of those young independent nations standing unisono despite being in different camps during the Cold War era because they all through that showed this is their secretary general. So representing the member states who do not have a say otherwise in the asymmetric power relations, I would think, is another important legacy for which Hammarskjöld stood. And he also said that internationally lasting agreements should always be brokered by and through the authority of the United Nations Secretariat. And the Secretary General, it's also very important to keep in mind, should always maintain the ultimate control over United Nations interventions. That's not practiced today any longer, where we have NATO troops on behalf of the UN somewhere intervening. I think Hammarskjöld would never, ever have agreed to something like that. So this is a list, and I could go on, where I would say these are the Hammarskjöld principles. That is his legacy. Did he succeed in successfully implementing and applying them? Sometimes. In most cases, not. And I think that's another issue I try to tease out in the book at the end, despite all the respect and admiration for someone like Hammarskjöld. Whoever the person is, whoever committed that person is, this person operates in a structure. And that structure has a power of its own. So there are inbuilt limitations to an office. That's the flip side. But then coming back to the positive side, would there be no difference if anyone else who not followed the principles or the ethics would have been the Secretary General in those times? And I dare to say there would have been a difference. To that extent, a secretary general of the caliber of the commercial made a difference despite all the limitations he was facing. I'd just like to always conclude every podcast by asking, what are you thinking of working on next? The next project is already completed. I have uh, edited a book on Germany and Africa with, uh, um, so to say, um, an overview on the official Africa policy of the German government, but then also on issues of post-colonial initiatives, uh, on migration, on refugee politics. And that book is launched in at the Frankfurt International Book Fair in mid-October of 2019. And the next project is a very different one, which I'm trying to, to finalize since three years or so. I would like to compile a social history 
of the old location in Windhoek. Now, that refers to a place which was until 1960-61 the biggest singular uh, place of black Namibians living under apartheid before a forced removal kicked in. And that history of that old location where apartheid was not strictly implemented because the people refused that is not yet in public records. And I had always hoped that maybe younger black Namibian scholars would uh, be interested enough to write that history, but that has not happened. So I felt before it's too late, maybe now someone else should try and compile such a social history, giving voice to those people who are not yet in the public domain. So that's one of the next uh, bigger projects. Well, I hope to hear more about it. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for the interest, and I hope that the listeners have not been bored. (laughs) I wouldn't worry about that.